This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. On the 20th of November 2015, the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law hosted its second annual conference entitled Protection Elsewhere But Where? National, Regional and Global Perspectives on Refugee Law. Okay. Because it is now 11 o'clock and despite the fact that not everyone is here, we're going to start up again because, as uh, Renata mentioned uh, just before the break, Andreas Schlonhardt has to leave to catch an overseas flight. He has to walk out of here at 12.15, which is before the end of the session. So what we're going to do is have his session and any questions to him, and then we'll have the other speakers. And for the same reason, I'm only going to go through the uh, flattering introduction of him first, and then the others uh, in their turn. Uh, So, Professor Andreas Schlernhardt has a CV to die for. Um, He's a Professor of Criminal Law uh, at at the University of Queensland, a Professorial Research Fellow in the Faculty of Law at the University of Vienna. He's a consultant to the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime in Vienna and a visiting professor of the University of Zurich and the University of St Gallen in Switzerland. Uh, Before his position at the University of Queensland, he was a lecturer at the University of Adelaide Law School. This has been a progressive upward climb, I can say. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Adelaide. (laughs) He has a PhD in law from the University of Adelaide, so it's actually a level playing field. He completed his first degree at the University of Augsburg in Germany and holds the Erstes Staatsexamen from the Ministry of Justice in Munich. Um, uh, uh, His principal areas of research include criminal law, organised crime, migrant smuggling, people trafficking, narco-trafficking, terrorism, criminology and immigration and refugee law, uh, many of which have a great deal of common ground. Please welcome Andreas Schlenhardt. Thank you very much for the very kind introduction and I'm deeply sorry that I have to leave a little bit early but the airline moved my flight um, forward by an hour and I have to return to Vienna um, tonight. Um, Thank you very much also to the organizers here at UNSW for inviting me to Sydney today. The topic of my presentation um, relates to um, what many see as a centerpiece of Australia's present policies relating to the smuggling of migrants and the arrival of asylum seekers in this country, the so-called turning back the boats policy. At the end of 2013, the Australian government reintroduced this policy to turn around or tow back vessels carrying irregular migrants, many of them asylum seekers. This policy is designed to prevent their arrival in Australia and return them to the place from where the vessels departed. A similar policy, as many of you will know, was in operation in late 2001 when four vessels were returned to Indonesia at that time. After a short overview, my presentation will first summarise the background of the turnbacks effected in 2001. Next, the policies and developments during the years 2007 to 2013, when the Labour government was in power, are briefly summarised before I turn to Operation Sovereign Borders that has been part of official government policy since September 2013. The operation of this policy will then be assessed against the set of objectives before we have some time for discussion. 
This graph here that many of you um, would have seen um, shows the number of so-called irregular maritime arrivals in Australia between 1999 and 2014 and highlights that these arrivals, most of them by way of migrant smuggling, peaked between 1999 and 2001 and again from 2009 to 2013. The sharp drop in late 2001 and again in 2013-14 has frequently been attributed to the harsh policies adopted by the coalition government. First, the so-called Pacific Solution that was instituted in September 2001 and then Operation Sovereign Borders that followed the coalition's election victory in September 2013. Policies by the Labour government under Prime Ministers Rudd and Gillard, on the other hand, have been blamed for the rise in numbers from 2008 onwards. From the outset, it has to be noted that this graph and these explanations oversimplify the complexities of irregular migration to this country and completely ignore, for instance, the changing circumstances in the countries of origin of asylum seekers, and they do not show the effect that our policies have on transit countries, Indonesia in particular. Measures to return vessels bringing irregular migrants from Indonesia to Australia were first instituted as part of a number of policies implemented by the Australian government in 2001 to deny asylum seekers arriving by boat entry into Australia and deter others from making the same journey. These policies became collectively known as the Pacific Solution. The catalyst for the introduction of these measures was an incident involving a Norwegian cargo ship, the MV Tamper, that had to come to the rescue of 433 asylum seekers on their way from Indonesia to Australia. The Australian government refused to allow the asylum seekers to disembark at Christmas Island, and the MV Tamper was seized by armed SAS troops. In response to this incident and other irregular uh, arrivals around the same time, the Australian government began the policy to, one, detain asylum seekers in Nauru and Papua New Guinea, two, limit the protection of onshore asylum seekers to temporary visas, three, excise offshore territories from the migration zone, and four, return some migrant smuggling vessels to Indonesia under the so-called Operation RELAX. Operation RELAX was initiated on the 28th of August 2001 and ended in early 2002. Initially, it involved the Navy attempting to persuade vessels to voluntarily return to Indonesia by issuing warnings against continuing and redirecting vessels out of Australian waters. When this was unsuccessful, a policy of active return was adopted, which involved steering or towing vessels to Indonesia when it was considered, quote, safe to do so. The Navy determined whether a vessel could be safely returned based on the state of the vessel's engine, the state of its hull, the presence of life-saving radio and navigational equipment, and the skills of the crew. During Operation RELAX, 12 so-called suspected illegal entry vessels, or CFs for short, were detected attempting to reach Australia. The first four of these vessels could not be persuaded to return to Indonesia, and CF4 ultimately sank. Four vessels were successfully returned after the policy of active return was adopted. Two vessels, CF6 and 10, sank during the return process. Returns were not attempted on CF8 and 9 when their engines failed. I want to briefly outline two of these cases, CF5 and CF10. 
CF5 was the first vessel successfully returned to Indonesia under Operation Relax. It was carrying 238 Afghan and Iranian migrants when it was intercepted near Ashmoreev on the 12th of October 2001. Warnings and attempts to redirect the vessel out of the Australian contingent zone were not met by success. On the night of October 17, the Navy began to tow the vessel back to Indonesia. To prevent disturbances, the passengers were not informed of this. Two days later, they reached the edge of the Indonesian Territorial Sea. When the passengers realized that they would be returned, a riot broke out, and the engine room of the vessel was stormed to disable the engine. One passenger lit a fire on board the vessel, others threatened to harm themselves. After the engine had been repaired, the vessel was left drifting outside the Indonesian Territorial Sea near West Timor. Approximately 10 hours later, the vessel reached the shore. CF-10 was intercepted near Ashmore Reef on the 8th of November 2001. It was carrying four crew and 160 mostly Afghan migrants. When customs officials boarded the vessel, there was an explosion in the engine room that set fire to the vessel and forced the passengers to jump overboard. Most of the passengers could not swim but were equipped with simple life jackets. Two women were dragged from the water unconscious and could not be revived. The survivors were taken to Christmas Island and later to Nauru. In 2002, the incident was investigated by the Western Australian coroner. Evidence was presented alleging that the fire in the engine room of CF-10 was deliberately lit. The coroner's finding, however, left it open whether the deaths were caused by an unlawful act or by accident. Operation Relax concluded on the 13th of March 2002 to enable information about the operation to be given to a parliamentary committee investigating the circumstances of CF-4 and false allegations that passengers on this vessel had thrown children overboard. It was replaced by Operation Relax 2, which continued until the 16th of July 2006. In nearly five and a half years of its operation, only one vessel, CF-14, was returned to Indonesia during Operation Relax 2. This vessel ran aground on Melville Island in the Northern Territory on the 4th of November 2003. It was carrying 14 Turkish men and four Indonesian crew. Six of these men disembarked from the vessel onto the beach where they were met by several locals who alerted Australian authorities. Later that day, Navy officials boarded CF-14 and served a detention notice. The passengers and the vessel remained in this spot for nearly 37 hours. During this period, customs and immigration closed down the airport of Melville Island and declared an exclusion zone. In judicial proceedings, it was later noted, quote, that the policy of the government was to operate as clandestinely as possible and provide no information to the public through the media to the extent that this could be avoided. On November 7, 2003, CF-14 was towed 20 kilometers out to sea, where it anchored. One day later, news emerged that talks had been held with Indonesia to return the passengers and crew. On the same day, the Northern Territory Legal Aid Commission lodged an application to the Supreme Court in Darwin to have the asylum seekers brought to Australia for processing. However, two days later, it was confirmed that by that time, the Navy had already towed CF-14 back to Indonesia. Why recapping all of these old stories? Mr. Tony Abbott, then leader of the opposition, cited the success of operations RELAX and RELAX-2 as justification for proposals to reintroduce similar policies on numerous occasions, stating that, quote, the Navy has done it safely before, 
there is no reason why they can't do it safely again. The account of the turnbacks, however, shows that the policy posed serious risks to the lives and safety of those involved and only had very limited success in actually returning vessels to Indonesia. No vessel was successfully persuaded to return to Indonesia by the use of warning notices. Under the subsequent policy of active return, several vessels were returned to Indonesia, but a further three sank at some point during interdiction or return. Even when return to Indonesia was accomplished, the operations involved significant risk to the asylum seekers, to the crew, and Australian Navy and Customs personnel. To mark the turnbacks under this policy as a success is thus, to my mind, a misrepresentation by any standard. On the 3rd of December 2007, Mr. Kevin Rudd succeeded Mr. Howard as Prime Minister. During the nearly six years, the Labour government held office, first under Mr. Rudd and later under Ms. Gillard, who strongly opposed the turnback policy. No further vessels were returned to Indonesia. Australian Navy and Customs officials who intercepted vessels, however, continued the practice of warning crew and passengers and advising them to return to Indonesia. This led to a disastrous incident involving CF-36, a vessel that was intercepted on April 15, 2009, southeast of Ashmore Reef. Upon boarding CF-36, Navy officers handed out a notice stating, quote, the government of Australia is determined to stop illegal migration to its territory, and you should now consider immediately returning to Indonesia with your passengers and not enter Australian territory. This notice was wrongly issued because CF-36 was already within Australia's territorial sea at that time. The warning led passengers to believe that they would be forcibly returned to Indonesia, which caused them to panic and in order to prevent the vessel's return, set it alight, causing an explosion. The passengers and crew of CF-36 and a number of Navy personnel who had boarded the vessel were thrown overboard by the explosion or were forced to jump overboard to safety. Five Afghan asylum seekers died from injuries sustained in the explosion or from drowning as a result of this explosion. Another 40 persons were injured. An inquest into the deaths later found that the explosion probably would not have occurred if the warning notice had not been issued. The practice of issuing such notices ceased as a result of these findings. From late 2008, the number of irregular boats carrying asylum seekers began to rise again, which led the Australian public, the Liberal and National parties, then in opposition, and the media to blame the government for the growing numbers and the rising costs associated with detaining and processing asylum seekers in Australia. In response to growing pressure, Prime Minister Gillard commissioned an expert panel on asylum seekers to provide advice on how best to prevent asylum seekers from travelling to Australia by boat. This panel released its report in August 2012, which, among other things, entertained the idea of re-implementing a policy of returning vessels to Indonesia. But it stressed that returns to Indonesia could only be affected in circumstances where a range of conditions are met. These conditions included consent from Indonesia, compliance with domestic and international law, including the obligation not to return refugees to a place where they face persecution, and obligations to passengers and crew under the Convention for the Safety of Life at Sea. The panel also noted that turnback decisions could only be made after risk to the safety of Australian personnel and any legal responsibility Australia would have for the turnbacks had been considered. The panel concluded 
that the conditions for effective, lawful and safe turnbacks were not met at this time and opted against the adoption of such measures. On the 18th of September 2013, 11 days after winning the election, the new government, led by Prime Minister Abbott, implemented Operation Sovereign Borders, a, quote, military-led response to combat people smuggling and to protect Australia's borders. This involved a suite of measures to deny and deter the arrival of irregular migrants by boat, including the policy of returning vessels. Operation Sovereign Borders shares many similarities with Operation Relax, but differs in several important points. First, under the new policy, a number of boats have been purchased for the purpose of ensuring the return of migrants in the event that this cannot take place on the original vessel. Second, the policy also involves returning vessels to countries such as Sri Lanka, Vietnam and India. Third, in at least one case, Australian officials made cash payments to the crew of a migrant smuggling vessel to return that vessel and the migrants to Indonesia. The first turnback on Operation Sovereign Borders was effected on the 19th of December 2013. For 10 months, the Australian government refused to confirm the return of any vessels to asi of asylum seekers, citing the need for operational secrecy. On the 6th of August 2015, that is the latest figure I could find, Mr. Peter Dutton, the current Minister for Immigration, stated that between December 2013 and August 2015, 20 vessels carrying 633 migrants had been returned to their country of departure. I only want to outline two of these turnbacks briefly. The first one is the Situmina, which was detected, oh, sorry, which was returned on the 6th of July 2014 to Sri Lanka. The vessel was bound for New Zealand, but after 10 years, it experienced engine trouble and ran out of fuel. The passengers then called a New Zealand emergency number, and on the 28th of June last year, the vessel was intercepted in the Australian contiguous zone west of the Cocos Islands. Australian authorities conducted refugee status determination of the passengers by satellite phone as part of the government's so-called enhanced screening process. This process involves asking each of the asylum seekers a set of four questions and determining their refugee status on the basis without a right of appeal if there is a negative decision. Forty passengers had their claims rejected. One passenger was assessed as being eligible for further assessment but chose to return to Sri Lanka when informed that he would be transferred either to Manus Island or to Nauru. On the 6th of July, the 41 passengers were transferred to a Sri Lankan Navy vessel in waters outside the Sri Lankan Territorial Sea. The passengers were taken ashore and handed over to police to face charges in relation to leaving Sri Lanka illegally. In September 2014, reports emerged that the migrants had been maltreated and some tortured by Sri Lankan authorities. In January of this year, it was reported that nine of these passengers were subsequently found to be genuine refugees by UNHCR. In May of this year, a vessel carrying 65 passengers bound for New Zealand was stopped by Australian authorities in international waters and warned not to enter Australia. Australian boats followed the vessel for several days, boarded it again, and then escorted it to Greenhill Island near Darwin. It appears that around that time, a payment of $32,000 was made to the Indonesian crew to return the vessel and its passengers to Indonesia. Due to the unseaworthiness of the vessel, two smaller vessels were provided to them. These vessels arrived in Indonesia on the 31st of May 2015. Indonesian authorities arrested the crew who are currently facing trial.
So $32,000 were also seized by Indonesian authorities, but have since vanished. <laughs> Amnesty International recently released a report outlining its concerns about this practice, and a parliamentary committee is currently examining the circumstances of this incident and is due to report in April of next year. The two primary objectives of the policy to return vessels of asylum seekers to their country of embarkation have been, one, to deny them entry into Australia, and two, to deter other asylum seekers from attempting to reach Australia by boat. The policy has also been justified by the Australian government on the basis that it saves the lives of smuggled migrants. In the remaining time, I briefly want to assess the turnback policy against its own stated goals. Operation Relax and Operation Sovereign Borders successfully prevented the arrival of several migrant smuggling vessels in Australia. Under Operation Relax, four such vessels were stopped after the policy of active return was adopted, and thus some 473 passengers were denied entry into Australia. The policy goal was not achieved with four vessels, including two that sank and two that suffered from engine failure. As a result, 560 irregular migrants, most of them asylum seekers, were able to enter Australia and placed in immigration detention. Based on the limited open source information, Operation Sovereign Borders has been more successful in denying entry into Australia. Although no vessels were returned for the first three months of its operation, once the policy was implemented with full rigor from December 2013, 20 vessels carrying a total of 633 people have been returned. Since December 2013, only one vessel carrying 157 persons reached Australia. There is some evidence to show that the so-called Pacific Solution, of which Operation Relax was one component, also achieved the objective of deterring further arrivals of asylum seekers into Australia. On the surface, it appears that the Pacific Solution all but eliminated this phenomenon at the time. It is, however, not possible to isolate the effect of the turnback policies under Operation Relax and later under Operation Sovereign Borders from the very many other measures adopted by the Australian government to stop irregular boat arrivals and reduce the rights of asylum seekers in Australia. That is not to say that the turnback policies had no deterrent effect at all, but it is not possible to identify and quantify that effect. Factors in the source countries that are not further discussed here also contributed substantially to the reduction of asylum seekers in the region. The deterrent effect of Operation Sovereign Borders is similarly ambiguous. On the one hand, the available data clearly shows that the number of irregular maritime arrivals in Australia dropped considerably since 2013. But on the other hand, there are also indications that the number of such arrivals was already decreasing in the 12 months prior to the reintroduction of the turnback measures. The decrease from July 2013 coincided also with the announcement by the then government that irregular arrivals would be taken to Papua New Guinea, where they would be placed in immigration detention. The reduction in irregular maritime arrivals since mid-2013 has also been attributed to measures adopted by the Indonesian government, such as disallowing some nationalities to obtain visas on arrival in Indonesia. The Australian government has also promoted the view that turning vessels away from Australia saves lives in that fewer migrants will drown or otherwise die on their journey from Indonesia to Australia. 
It has been estimated that between 1998 and 2013, approximately 1,550 people on 41 vessels died en route to Australia. It is not possible to present any evidence to show a causal link between the turnback policies and any persons who would have drowned or died had the policy not been implemented. By contrast, the reports about those vessels that have been returned to Indonesia show that attempts to turn back vessels have frequently resulted in self-harm and threats of suicide by the migrants, and that several turnbacks involved very tumultuous, dangerous, and sometimes violent circumstances. The available evidence also shows that the turnbacks that were effected or attempted during Operation Relax resulted in five persons dying. There has also been a report of three pass passengers perishing in remote Indonesian jungle after the vessel was returned under Operation Sovereign Borders. Given the official secrecy surrounding this topic, it is not possible to say with certainty that there have been no further cases of death or injury. It is conceivable that the turnbacks and the deterrence of asylum seekers may have resulted in further dangers, further harm, and deaths of irregular migrants who are now forced to use other smuggling routes. Moreover, the policy creates a risk that persons fleeing from persecution are returned to a place where they face further persecution. This risk is particularly high given the fact that most irregular migrants who arrive in Australia by boat are found to be refugees. Although turnbacks are said to be limited to situations in which it is safe to do so, the execution carries many operational risks that are rarely acknowledged in official government statements. During Operation Relax, a practice was adopted that irregular boat arrivals would be warned about the consequences of proceeding to Australia. A Senate committee report notes that these warnings have been ignored, quote, almost without exception, and a series of judicial decisions emphasize that these warnings do not provide the crew with a realistic opportunity to desist. The irregular migrants on board the vessels are generally cooperative, even after they have been intercepted, so long as they believe they are proceeding to Australia. Tensions usually arise once the migrants become aware of the fact that they will be returned. Acts of sabotage have been particularly common. These include minor acts of damage to the vessels and engines, but in some cases very serious destruction so that the vessels became unseaworthy, sank, and the passengers and crew had to be rescued. The limited information about the turnbacks affected under Operation Sovereign Borders suggests that similar patterns of behavior have emerged. The turnback policy ignores that most migrants have used their life savings and those of their families to pay the migrant smugglers and now fear losing the invest investment if they are returned to Indonesia. Those who seek asylum in Australia fear that the return also places them at renewed risk of persecution. It is thus not surprising that some migrants may try to sabotage the vessel, even if this poses great danger to their own lives and those of other passengers and crew. Since the introduction of Operation Sovereign Borders, Australian authorities have adopted two strategies to prevent serious sabotage. The first of these strategies involves lying to the migrants about the intended destination of the turnback. The effect of this deliberate misinformation is that the migrants remain calm and cooperative until they realize that they are, in fact, being returned. Navy and customs officials will try to attempt to neutralize any serious risk of sabotage by that time, securing fuel, confiscating matches and lighters. Secondly, 
In the event that the original migrant vessel has become unseaworthy, the Australian government will furnish them with new boats that carry just enough fuel and supplies to take them back to Indonesia. The risks of serious injury and death are further augmented by the turnback policies in situations in which the migrants were not permitted to leave their leaky boats and embark onto an Australian vessel. During Operation Relax, Navy commanders were under clear instructions not to allow the migrants and their crew to embark on the Australian vessels unless absolutely necessary to prevent injury or death. This was done of the view that if the passengers were to embark onto Australian vessels, it would have been impossible to remove them without the use of force. It appears that under Operation Sovereign Borders, similar instructions have been given to Navy and Customs personnel. Further risks to the migrants stem from the fact that Australian authorities cannot return the migrants and their vessels all the way to Indonesia, but have to release them outside Indonesia's territorial sea. Threats of harm and sabotage also pose serious risks to Australian personnel involved in, infect, in effecting the boat turnbacks. In some cases, some migrants turn their anger directly against Australian officials. Returning vessels to Indonesia, which often involves the use of force or other coercive measures, also poses significant mental health risks to those affecting the turnbacks. Internal Navy reports written several years before the commencement of Operation Sovereign Borders also warned that carrying out a turnback policy would have negative effects on the morale and could lead to greater incidences of post-traumatic stress disorder among Navy personnel due to the way in which on-water situations escalate. In conclusion, it is evident that the turning back the boats policy, along with the rigor with which it has been implemented, has achieved one policy goal. That is to prevent irregular migrants, most of whom seek asylum, from arriving in Australia. Whether or not the policy has been successful in saving lives of irregular migrants cannot be established with any certainty. What is clear is that the policy has not addressed the causes of irregular migration and migrant smuggling, and that it has placed a greater burden on transit countries, Indonesia in particular. One of the main effects of the turnback policy has been a shifting of Australian responsibilities to other countries and a rejection of Australia's obligation under international refugee law, so that Australia's signature under the Refugee Convention, to my mind, has become now largely meaningless. The situation as it is now is that fewer asylum seekers risk their lives trying to reach Australia and instead remain in or are returned to countries where they have no permanent status, where they may have to live in hiding, and where the persecuted face a real risk of being returned to their persecutors. The execution of the turnback policies under operations RELAX and Sovereign Borders has also placed passengers, crew, and Australian personnel at risk of serious harm. The policy has failed to establish an environment of transparency and understanding in which the migrants collaborate with Navy and customs officials rather than turning against them. The policy also puts the bilateral relationship with Indonesia and regional cooperation against the smuggling of migrants in serious jeopardy. Returning vessels carrying asylum seekers from Australia has severely damaged our already poor human rights record relating to asylum seekers and has tarnished Australia's image in the world. The conclusion to be drawn from this research is that the disadvantages of the turnback policy greatly outweigh its objectives and any perceived advantages. 
it is difficult to support and sustain this policy in these circumstances. Thank you very much. Whilst the techo stuff is being done, let me introduce Rhea Hearn McKinnon. Rhea um, was appointed as principal member of the Nauruan Refugee Status Review Tribunal in September 2013. She's also a part-time member of the Australian AAT in the Migration and, Re and Refugee Division. She's been a senior member of the Migration and Refugee Review Tribunals and a reviewer with the Independent Protection Assessment Office, um, which applies to those who don't have any right to uh, review at the RRT. Um, she has practised extensively as a solicitor uh, in administrative and refugee law um, and has held a number of other statutory appointments, including as a member of the Victorian Intellectual Disability Review Tribunal, the Victorian Children's Court Conference Convener and Deputy Community Advocate for the ACT. She has a Bachelor of Laws with Honours, a Bachelor of Arts and a Bachelor of Social Administration. Please welcome Rhea Hearn-McKinnon. Thank you very much for the opportunity to speak today. Um, so I'm speaking in my capacity as the Principal Member of the Refugee Status Review Tribunal of Nauru. And um, I'm going to describe today the refugee status determination framework on Nauru, or that the Nauru has established um, uh, as a regional processing partner from Nauru's perspective in response to Australia's offshore refugee uh, processing policy. Firstly, uh, the Republic of Nauru lies 42 kilometres south of the equator and 4,500 kilometres northeast of Australia. It is 21 square kilometres in size and has a population of 10,000 people. It is the world's smallest independent republic and a fairly new, fairly new refugee jurisdiction having acceded to the convention um, in June 2011. In August 2012, Nauru signed a memorandum of understanding with Australia allowing for the transfer of asylum seekers from Australia to Nauru for RSD processing. Under the memorandum and a subsequent memorandum signed in 2013, Nauru is responsible for the RSD process whilst Australia bears the costs incurred under the memorandum. And um, in practice, it is the case that Nauru manages and controls the RSD process. The asylum seekers transferred to Nauru are accommodated in a regional processing centre um, in the centre of the island. Um, and as you're probably aware, that centre became a completely open centre in October of this year. Persons found to be refugees are accommodated in a range of um, purpose-built accommodation on the island. The asylum seekers and refugees on Nauru are from a wide range of countries primarily Iran, Pakistan, Afghanistan and Sri Lanka, but also from Iraq, Bangladesh, Somalia, Sudan, India, Nepal, Lebanon, Myanmar, Kuwait and Palestine. And, uh, Ria, can you speak more directly into the mic? Oh, I'm sorry. Can you have, have, has that been uh, difficult to hear? Is that better? Thank you. Um, 
Do I need to repeat anything? <laughs> okay. Um, so in 2012, Nauru enacted the Refugees Convention Act, which establishes the legal framework for RSD processing. The Act establishes or creates a refugee jurisdiction, which incorporates the definition of a refugee in the Refugees Convention without any amendment or codification. It establishes a complementary protection jurisdiction by prohibiting the return of persons to the frontiers of territories where to do so would breach Nauru's international obligations. It provides that dependents of persons found to be refugees must be granted derivative status and it provides for merits review and judicial review of negative refugee determinations. So in assessing refugee status, Nauru applies the UNHCR guidelines as set out in the UNHCR handbook. Nauru has also produced its own comprehensive guidelines which, are, uh, which reflect the UNHCR guidelines. There is not currently any Nauruan um, refugee jurisprudence. Nauru also applies the UNHCR guidelines in relation to dependency and takes a um, fairly beneficial view of dependency and has accepted large extended family groups as dependents. Nauru's international obligations are contained in several international conventions. Nauru has ratified the Convention Against Torture. It has signed the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination and has acceded to the Convention on the Rights of the Child, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, and the Convention on the Rights of Persons with a Disability. Under the Refugees Convention Act, primary RSD determinations are made by the Secretary of the Department of Justice. RSD officers conduct interviews with asylum seekers and prepare assessments for the Secretary to consider. A number of Nauruan officers have been trained um, and have undertaken these assessments with mentoring from Australian protection officers and some assessments have also been undertaken by Australian protection officers, seconded to work on Nauru. As at 1 November 2015, 770 asylum seekers have been found to be refugees, 314 have received a negative refugee determination and 103 are waiting on their determination. Asylum seekers who receive a negative determination can seek review by the Refugee Status Review Tribunal. There is a 28-day time period for the lodging of an application, but as principal member, I can extend time um, if I'm satisfied that there are compelling circumstances. The tribunal is um, established under the Refugees Convention Act as an independent statutory merits review tribunal. It is inquisitorial and not bound by the rules of evidence. It has the power to obtain any information it considers relevant, to summons people to appear or provide documents, and to require the secretary to conduct an investigation or medical examination. The tribunal is explicitly bound by the rules of natural justice and must put clear particulars of any adverse information to applicants without exception. The tribunal can make positive decisions on the papers but must otherwise hold a hearing and can take evidence by telephone, video or any other means. To date, all hearings have been conducted in person on Nauru, although one hearing was completed by telephone from Australia. And there are currently no video link facilities on the island in any event. 
the tribunal also has the power to authorise another person to take evidence on its behalf, but hasn't actually exercised that power to date. The Secretary does not have a right to appear before the Tribunal, but may provide written arguments relating to the issues arising in the review. The Tribunal must complete its review in 90 days and must produce written reasons for its decision. The Tribunal consists of the Principal Member, um, two Deputy Principal Members and currently six Members. Oh no, sorry, currently five members, um, but um, we are in the process of appointing um, two new members. Uh, so the members are all current or past members of the former Refugee Review Tribunal, which is now incorporated into the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. Some of our members have also worked for the UNHCR, and so all bring a significant level of RSD experience to the Nauru Tribunal. The tribunal sits in Nauru um, for a two-week period. Um, it usually hears about 18 cases during that time, between, say, 16 and 20, but approximately 18 on average. Um, before we commence our sittings, we generally hold a meeting with all of the asylum seekers whose cases are going to be heard in that two-week period. And in this preliminary meeting, we explain the, who we are, what we do, the role of the tribunal. Um, we go through the refugee definition um, and we um, answer any questions that they may have. We find that's a very um, uh, good way to start the sitting because it reduces people, it, people know what to expect when they come to the hearing and it reduces their anxiety about what's, um, what's going to happen. We find as time goes on that fewer asylum seekers attend those meetings and I, I'm hoping that the reason for that is because the role of the tribunal and the tribunal practice is now well known um, within the centre and so people don't feel the same need to come and find out about it. Um, so the tribunal has now conducted eight sittings uh, commencing in um, July 2014. The hearings are um, conducted in a small demountable uh, building in the main administrative section of the processing centre. Initially it was intended that the hearings would be conducted outside the centre to emphasise the tribunal's independence, um, but there was no uh, suitable space available so uh, we were, had no choice but to operate from within the centre, but it actually I think um, is obviously more convenient, it's easy for applicants to get to, and the lawyers and the interpreters are on site, so it's, um, it, it in fact is m much more efficient. As at 1 November the, uh, 2015, the tribunal had heard 128 cases and finalised 109. It has set aside the Secretary's determination in 46 cases and affirmed the Secretary's negative determination in 63 cases. 19 cases are awaiting decision, 17 cases are listed for hearing in December and we have 148 applications pending, um, which is a significantly high number of cases pending um, and that number arises from the fact that there was a very high um, hand down of primary decisions um, in September, October of this year. 
The tribunal sits as a three-member panel with the principal member or one of the deputies presiding. The presiding member is responsible for running the hearing and ensuring that the tribunal meets its statutory obligations. The decisions are made collectively and the majority view prevails. Um, there are a number of challenges. The obvious challenge is the processing environment. Um, the um, asylum seekers have now resided in difficult conditions for an extended period of time and the effects of extended detention are well documented. Um, most uh, are obviously very anxious about their futures and that of their families. They come to hearings often tired and stressed. Um, their evidence has to be taken very carefully and the hearings can be um, quite long and intense. Uh, the three-member panel is um, very advantageous in these circumstances because not only does it assist good decision-making, um, it, it means that the members have the support of colleagues um, during the process. Uh, the asylum seekers are assisted by qualified interpreters throughout the process. Persons found by the tribunal not to be owed protection can appeal to the Supreme Court of Nauru on a point of law. Uh, a number of appeals have been lodged, uh, but none have yet been heard. The Supreme Court has now issued a practice direction and it is expected that the court will list these cases again in two or three week blocks commencing in 2016. The asylum seekers on Nauru are assisted throughout the process by lawyers from a contracted Australian firm with experience in refugee law. The lawyers have established a shop front in the centre so are easily accessible to the asylum seekers. And their team leader and another lawyer are full-time on the island. Uh, the lawyers prepare the RSD application and a written statement setting out the protection claims and attend the RSD interview for each asylum seeker. Um, following a negative determination, the lawyers lodge the tribunal review application and prepare further written statement of claims and legal submissions and attend the hearing. They generally make oral submissions at the hearing and may make uh, post-hearing written submissions. If the tribunal affirms the secretary's determination, the lawyers are funded to obtain an opinion from counsel on the merits of an appeal to the Supreme Court and a panel of four barristers have been contracted to provide assistance to asylum seekers at the judicial review stage. The secretary is the respondent in judicial review proceedings and is obviously also represented. So in conclusion, uh, at a time when some countries have diminished their RSD systems, Nauru has sought to establish a, compre a comprehensive system which provides asylum seekers with a legal framework in which their claims can be assessed um, um, in which they receive legal assistance to make their claims and which offers them merits review and judicial review. Um, uh, now, as the principal member of the tribunal, I was tasked with getting that um, system or the, the tribunal aspect of the system operational very quickly. It was uh, exciting to be involved in the establishment of a new RSD system but, and challenging because of the particular environment. However, those of us working on Nauru are committed to ensuring that the asylum seekers there do have access to a high-quality RSD process 
and that their claims are thoroughly assessed in accordance with international standards. Thank you. Thank you, Ria. Um, we will, of course, have questions for Ria and for Madeline at the end of Madeline's talk. Now, Madeline Gleeson has a misleading and deceptive name, um, but if it conveys to you the idea that she is connected to or related to a former High Court Chief Justice, it's accurate but not quite accurate. She's the granddaughter of Sir Gerard Brennan and not, I understand, related to... Murray Gleeson. She is, however, a lawyer and a research assistant at the Caldor Centre, um, uh, and, and she holds a Master of International Law from the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva, uh, which she completed after being awarded the... Uh, 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 so, I'm so sorry. The John Monash Scholarship. Um, in 2012. She has a Bachelor of International Studies and Bachelor of Laws with first class honours from uh, this university, a Diploma of Political Studies from the Institut uh, d'Etudes Politiques uh, in Aix-en-Provence. She has worked with the UNHCR uh, and the International Catholic Migration Commission in Geneva uh, and with the Jesuit Refugee Service in Cambodia. She's also worked as a solicitor in Australia. Um, she has great human rights uh, and um, refugee experience in South Africa and Indonesia. And she's just finished a book uh, uh, on offshore processing on Nauru and Manus, which is going to be published next year by University of New South Wales Press. Please welcome Madeline Gleeson. Thank you, Julian. Well, the last slot before lunch is always sometimes hard to keep attention, so I might, um, if we can get the technology to work, start with a short video to sort of pep us up. and practice of the Australian Government to intercept any vessel that is seeking to illegally enter Australia and safely remove it beyond our waters. If you travel by boat without a visa, you will not make Australia home. The rules apply to everyone, families, children, unaccompanied children, educated and skilled. There are no exceptions. Do not believe the lies of people smugglers. These criminals will steal your money and place your life and the life of your family at risk for nothing. The message is simple. If you come to Australia illegally by boat, there is no way you will ever make Australia home. Since August 2012, Every asylum seeker who has reached Australia by boat or has been picked up at sea and brought in has been liable to transfer offshore to have their claim processed of one of two small Pacific islands, the tiny Republic of Nauru, which we've just heard about, or Manus Island in Papua New Guinea. 
Some three and a half thousand men, women and children have been sent to detention centres on these islands, ostensibly for processing. A number have since been repatriated, with a question mark over how voluntary some of those returns were. Around 1,000 were brought back to Australia before completing refugee status determination and are now waiting to be processed here. Another 1,000 are still offshore, recognised as refugees, but waiting on their respective islands for a permanent settlement opportunity to emerge. Just four refugees accepted a deal to be resettled from Nauru to Cambodia earlier this year, and one of them chose to leave again a few months later. Offshore processing, at least in this its current form, is the antithesis of protection. Not only does it have little, if anything, to do with finding durable solutions for people offshore, it is a distraction from, and indeed an impediment to, genuine and effective protection. Today, I will explore what went wrong in brief to lead us to this protection nowhere situation that three years of offshore processing has brought us to. There are four concepts in particular that are key to understanding this regime. No advantage, deterrence, responsibility, and protection or durable solutions. This final element, the durable solution for people sent offshore, has often been referred to as the last piece of the puzzle, the missing last piece of the puzzle. Protection has always been something to be found later, to be found along the way, when there's time and when the more immediate concerns have been attended to. But at the end of the paper today, I'll return to this idea of protection as the last piece to be found and challenge whether it really is something that can be left until the very end. Offshore processing was reintroduced by the Gillard Labor government on the 13th of August 2012, with great haste, after a year of stagnation and political impasse on asylum policy in the Australian Parliament. In August 2011, in the case of M70, the High Court had shut down the government's proposed Malaysian solution, and in doing so cast doubt on whether asylum seekers could be sent anywhere else in the region for processing either at least with the Migration Act in the form that it then was. By this stage, as we saw earlier, boats were arriving in greater number than ever before. And some 600 people were believed to have drowned along the way in the five years since Labor had taken power. Something needed to be done. So in the wake of the High Court's judgment, the government introduced legislation to Parliament that would, in its words, restore the law to how it had previously been understood. This bill sat in Parliament for almost a year, as the lower house debated itself immobile. Despite almost all members of Parliament supporting offshore processing in some form, there was no agreement on where it should be. Tony Abbott's opposition wanted Nauru, the government wanted Malaysia, although it was also willing to compromise and pursue both options simultaneously if that would at least allow it finally to do something. The movement on the political front that finally came on 13 August is commonly attributed to the report of the expert panel on asylum seekers, which we heard about earlier. And that report proposed that urgent, the urgent re-establishment of offshore processing in the Pacific as just one part of an integrated set of proposals designed to prevent people coming by sea. More precisely though, the long-awaited momentum that finally came came when the government amended its bill to provide that any designation of a regional processing country by the Immigration Minister would be subject to parliamentary approval. 
and it also agreed to designate Nauru and PNG immediately, which was exactly what the opposition had been asking for. It was hoped that in time the new law would provide a basis for resurrecting the Malaysian solution or indeed expanding Australian asylum policy into a broader regional cooperation framework, but these things would never happen. Neither the government nor the expert panel had ever envisaged offshore processing in the Pacific as the central plank of Australian asylum policy or one of the central planks of the policy. It was intended to be an interim stopgap measure, a circuit breaker of sorts, to provide an immediate response to the increasing number of boats. Perhaps at this time, the situation was seen in a similar way to the displacement crisis that Europe is currently facing today, although the magnitude of the problem there is well beyond anything that we've seen in Australia. In Australia in 2012, as in Europe now, there was an urgent sense of the need to act and to implement exceptional short-term measures to address a specific problem in that precise moment. Imperfect and incomplete measures, perhaps, but steps that would provide some relief until a more formal, longer-term strategy could be devised. These imperfect, incomplete, interim measures would become the core of Australian asylum policy for years to come. They have evolved and adapted over time, but to this day, they bear the traces of this, their hurried and short-sighted beginnings. Now, it is deceptive almost to the point of inaccurate to say that Australia has had a policy of offshore processing since this time. In fact, there have been two distinct policies or two distinct sets of policies over the past three years. One, from 13 August 2012 to 19 July 2013, and the second from that date onwards. The first of these arrangements was formalised in Memoranda of Understanding with both regional processing countries in 2012. Pursuant to these agreements, Australia transferred approximately 600 asylum seeker men to Nauru and a further 350 men, women and children to Manus Island. Every person who was sent offshore first entered was usually detained and was screened in Australia. Nobody went directly to an offshore processing country. Despite claims that they would enjoy freedom on their islands, every person in this first cohort was detained for the length of their stay offshore. Within the two detention centres, services were provided by a number of Australian companies and organisations, contracted and funded by the Australian Immigration Department. Indeed, all aspects of the offshore processing regime were and continue to be fully funded by Australia, with the department playing a significant management role in relation to both centres. And I'll come back to that point later. When it came to processing, neither Nauru nor PNG had any experience. In October 2012, Nauru passed a law establishing its own RSD system, of which we've just heard, and started to build the necessary institutions and human capacity from scratch. The early stages of processing then began in about March 2013. Meanwhile, over in PNG, the legal and administrative arrangements necessary for processing were still very much in their embryonic stages. And RSD did not start in any real form until about July of 2013, about the time these people were about to come back to Australia. All asylum seekers who arrived in Australia by boat during this time, whether they were sent offshore or were still in Australia, were subject to the Gillard government's no advantage policy. These have arguably been two of the most misunderstood and misapplied words of the past three years, and it's not hard to see why. No advantage was a concept without meaning. 
At a general level, it constituted an indefinite and imprecise deferral of protection until such time as a refugee would have been resettled in Australia if they had not got on a boat. But for most people who arrived this way, there was no alternative route they could have taken. And even if there was, it was impossible to say how long that would have taken. As UN High Commissioner for Refugees Antonio Guterres wrote to Immigration Minister Chris Bowen in September 2012, the practical implications of this policy are not fully clear to us. The time it takes for resettlement referrals by UNHCR in Southeast Asia or elsewhere may not be a suitable comparator for the period that a convention state whose protection obligations are engaged should use. Moreover, it will be difficult to identify such a period with any accuracy given that there is no average time for resettlement. Undeterred, the Gillard government appeared to believe the meaning of its policy could be worked out with time. With Nauru and PNG struggling to build their RSD systems and the suggestion that no advantage could mean waiting up to five years for resettlement, the issue of protection was deferred to another faraway time. The unanswered questions were critical though. Would the no advantage policy delay the processing so that people would not get refugee status until a later time? Or would people be processed to completion but then not be resettled until a later time? And this is relevant because what about their rights in the meantime? People who've been recognised as refugees cannot be detained indefinitely. They have access to a range of convention and other rights. Moreover, how did Australia propose to implement its domestic policy in the territory of two other sovereign states who both were on record saying that it didn't apply there? when Australia had committed to remove everyone it had sent within a shorter time as reasonably necessary. These are pretty critical questions to how this policy was going to work out. But they were mysteries never to be solved. Ultimately, no one sent offshore during this time ever completed RSD on Nauru Amanus, and so the question of settlement never arose. In July 2013, the second phase of Australia's offshore processing regime began. Newly reinstated Prime Minister Kevin Rudd had seized power in late June, seven weeks out from the federal election, and quickly announced a radical overhaul of Australia's immigration policy. Asylum seekers who had arrived by boat since August 2012 would no longer be subject to offshore processing. Everyone on Nauru and Manus was brought back to Australia to join those who had not yet been removed, and together they formed a caseload of some 30,000 people waiting in limbo for the Australian government to start to process them. And that processing has only just started now. Meanwhile, everyone who arrived by boat from 19 July 2013 onwards would be subject to offshore processing. This second cohort would be sent to Nauru and Manus, although the composition of the two centres switched. Manus now became the male-only facility and Nauru started accepting men, women and children. New agreements were signed with both countries, keeping many of the existing arrangements in place, but with one crucial difference. No one in this cohort would ever be resettled in Australia. As we saw at the beginning, there was no way they would ever make Australia home. Unfortunately, it was not clear what other option they had. Both Nauru and PNG initially indicated that they would allow some, if not all, of the people found to be refugees in their territory to settle locally. But these early intentions did not translate to a formal arrangement for the provision of durable solutions offshore. As the situation stands today, Refugees on Nauru are allowed to remain there temporarily for a maximum of five years on a series of short-term visas which are constantly being renewed. But they cannot stay there forever. Australia has said they cannot be resettled here. 
And Cambodia does not seem willing to accept many, if any, more refugees from the Pacific Island nation. There are no other countries on the horizon that we have a concrete arrangement with either. Over on Manus, the situation is both better and worse. Better in the sense that a certain number of refugees will be permitted, permitted to settle in PNG if they choose to do so, although the terms of the new settlement policy have only just been agreed and are yet to be tested. It's worse, though, in that, you know, to date, the majority of men found to be refugees have refused even to leave the detention centre and move into the transit facility, citing fears for their safety on the island and the lack of future prospects in PNG. For those refugees who will not accept settlement in PNG or to whom it is not offered, there will be as few options as for those on Nauru, not Australia, not Cambodia, not anywhere else. Now, this picture here is evidently a problem for the people who are in need of protection. But is it a problem for the Australian government? The language of no advantage fell away with Gillard, to be replaced by that of pure, unwavering deterrence. The underlying logic of both concepts is the same. But since mid-2013, any pretense at equivalence has been abandoned. The rhetoric of Australian asylum policy stopped being about advantages and disadvantages. Under Rudd, and with increasing intensity under the Abbott government with the rise of Operation Sovereign Borders, there's been just one objective pursued with single-minded determination, stopping the boats. People working within the Nauru and Mana centres, and indeed with or within the Australian government, have repeatedly said that the current offshore processing policy defies logic unless its only purpose is to break people, break their will, break their hope, and force them to take themselves back off home to where they came from regardless of the risks. Is it a problem for Australia that processing has been excruciatingly slow for asylum seekers on Nauru and Manus? Or that the vast majority have literally no prospects for the future? These things serve as a deterrent. They stop the boats. The longer people offshore are denied protection, the more effective the Australian government is at implementing its policies. Which brings us finally to the question of responsibility specifically state responsibility as a concept of international law. Which country has, or which countries collectively have, obligations with respect to people sent from Australia to Nauru and PNG for processing? This question alone could be debated at length, so I'll make just two points. First, it is absolutely beyond dispute that Australia has obligations under international law towards the people it sends offshore. Even on the most conservative view, Australia has non-reformant obligations towards people prior to and at the moment of deciding to remove them from Australian territory. And relevantly, these obligations do not only arise at the very first moment when they are transferred off Australia. They also arise at the point of any subsequent transfer. For example, if someone has been brought back to Australia for medical treatment or to give birth and are then to be removed back again, these obligations apply with equal force. Moreover, there are cogent and authoritative arguments of which I'm thoroughly persuaded that Australia's obligations extend considerably beyond this limited point. The Australian government, through the Department of Immigration and its contractors, does appear to exercise effective control over the centres on Nauru and Manus and the people within them. The issue at its essence comes down to the fact that people acting on behalf of the Australian government have the actual authority on the ground to determine people's enjoyment of rights. Almost every decision regarding the care and treatment of a person offshore is under the purview of the Australian Immigration Department, either alone or in conjunction with the Nauruan and Papua New Guinean authorities. 
And this leads me to the second point. As far as advancing our understanding of state responsibility in a cooperative immigration context, the past three years have been at best a wasted opportunity and at worst a major setback. If we are to embark upon a process of building a regional cooperation framework on asylum issues, we, all countries in this region, will need to confront difficult questions about how state obligations transform or expand or evolve when states work cooperatively to address displacement. The obtuse retort that everything happening outside Australian territory is a matter for someone else, end of story, which we've heard from the Australian government for some years now, is unhelpful. Public debate on these issues has been marred by this failure to engage with the substantive issues of responsibility sharing and cooperation. We are stuck in this habit of always shifting responsibility to someone else so that ultimately the buck stops with no one. So if we pull together the final threads of this argument, we see that protection, a durable solution, cannot be seen as the last piece of the puzzle of offshore processing that can be found or happened upon at some later point. It has to be the picture on the front of the puzzle box, guiding the content and the method and the implementation of asylum law and policy from the very beginning. Protection, regional cooperation and an answer to displacement in our region and globally will not be achieved without a clear picture of where we are going. Once we know that, then the laws and the policies and the plans can be formulated properly. In the meantime, as long as time, resources and energy continue to be sunk in such great extent into these protection black holes offshore, cooperation and development of the kind envisaged by Erica Feller this morning will be difficult to achieve. Thank you. <laughs>